0: Good morning. So good to see you. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter seven. That's where we're going to be continuing our series in the gospel of Mark. It's hard to believe we're already in chapter seven, moving right along, just chunk after chunk, walking through this great book of the Bible. A big thanks to Pastor Lee for uh, teaching us last week. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from him. I know that that was a real blessing Uh, to me as well. So thank you, Lee. And again, chapter 7 is where we're going to be starting. If you're new here, welcome. I know it's not always easy to walk into a a new building, let alone a new church. And so I'm glad that you're here and I would love to have a chance to meet you if I haven't already. Uh, This is a time in our service that we take every week just to open up God's Word and to study it together because we really believe that there is a God and this God has spoken or revealed Himself to the world, and we can come to know him and who he is and what he's like and what he expects of us through his word. And so as we prepare to do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we uh, we thank you for a chance to be together here today, gathered as your people, gathered as the church. God, we pray that you now would uh, take this time ahead of us and use it, Lord, to to change our hearts, to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us. Lord, would you do what only you can do, and that's be at work in our lives, Lord. Pray you'd remove distractions from our minds and hearts and allow us to truly hear your word. Thank you, God. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a so, sociologist and researcher and author by the name of Brene Brown. Maybe you've heard of her. She's done some fantastic work in recent years studying the area of vulnerability and shame. Again, hours and hours of research into the concepts of vulnerability and shame. And she defines shame as the intensely painful experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. She says in all of her research, this is how they've defined shame. It's this sense of feeling broken, feeling not good enough, feeling like there's something wrong with us. And she says this shame uh, shows up in a number of different categories. Some of those are appearance and body image, uh, money or success in the workplace, family, parenting, religion, mental health, physical health, aging, and so on, just to name a few. And she always starts her talks about shame, or her articles that she writes about shame, by sharing one very important piece of information with her audience, and it's this. Everyone experiences shame. Everyone. We all have it. It's a universal experience or feeling that we have. She said the only people they found that don't experience shame are those that lack the capacity for empathy or human connection. And so basically either you experience shame or you're a sociopath. Those are your two options. She said this is something that everyone feels. Now I find her research so fascinating if you think about our culture because What our culture often tells us, the message, whether through our movies or media or whatever, that we send to people is that there's nothing wrong with you, right? That we're essentially good people. People at their core are good in nature. You have nothing to feel bad about. We've gone through great lengths to redefine morality and our concept of truth. We've moved away from absolutes right and wrong, good and bad. We don't like to use that type of language. In the church, people have moved away from talking about judgment or sin. Those are topics that are uncomfortable. And so in so many ways, we're taught to think about shame in a way that says, well, really, you have nothing to feel shame about. You have nothing to feel guilty about. And we're told over and over again that really there's, there's nothing wrong with you. And yet, we have this research That shows that despite that message being played over and over again in culture, every single person still feels in the deepest part of who they are that there's something wrong with them. Every single person still wrestles with profound feelings of guilt and shame, the sense that if someone looked at us closely and they truly knew us, they would probably reject us. There's something off about who we are. Despite that cultural message over and over again to downplay judgment and sin and right and wrong and just be who you are. okay. So, interesting. We're going to look at this passage today in Mark chapter 7 that shows two very different approaches to dealing with shame and the feeling of being unclean. We might agree that everyone feels that, but how we should respond to it, people come up with a lot of different answers. And so let's see what the passage has to say to us in this way today. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. As the chapter begins, we're uh, right away struck with the conflict and the problem driving the text. And this is something we've seen before. The Pharisees or the religious leaders are in conflict with Jesus and his disciples about how they ought to live and how they ought to practice their religion. And it seems that these Pharisees and teachers of the law have come from religious headquarters in Jerusalem down to where Jesus is to kind of check out this new movement, these followers of Jesus is creating quite a stir, and so these religious leaders want to see, is this legit? Is this something that's of God, or is this something that we need to be concerned about? And when they go and they see Jesus, they notice, the text says, that the disciples of Jesus are eating without washing their hands. Now, this is not a concern about hygiene or germs or avoiding illness or anything of that nature that might strike us that way today. No, this had to do with a ceremonial cleansing, a ritual washing. See, for a Jew, they would be considered unclean ceremonially if they came in contact with dead animals or certain bodily discharges, blood, infectious diseases, things of that nature. And they had to wash themselves before they could engage in proper worship with the community. And this all was intended to point to the spiritual condition of the people. See, God in the Old Testament revealed himself as being a holy God. God who is without stain of sin, without any hint of evil or blemish or impurity. He was perfectly holy and just and righteous Without any imperfection, but the people, the people of the world and the people of God were marked by sin, by this tendency to lean away from God and His teachings, to rebel against God and instead do things their own way, do things that they should not do and think things that they should not think, and offend God and harm one another and damage God's good world. And so in the Old Testament, God made it clear that in order for a relationship to be restored with the people, for a a sinful, rebellious group of people to be in relationship with a perfect, holy God, there had to be some kind of purification process that they went through in order to be able to be in God's presence, which might sound a little silly to us, a little foreign, a little strange, but if you think about it, it's really not that far off from even today how we tend to operate. Because think about it when you go on a date or an interview, if you think back to the first date you had with your spouse, likely you didn't show up to that date in baggy sweatpants and a baggy t shirt without brushing your teeth or without combing your hair, right? I mean, maybe you did. But chances are, you, you did what? You, you cleaned yourself up a little bit, right? You put on some nice clothes, you brushed your teeth, combed your hair maybe, because you were about to do what? Meet with someone important. And so you wanted to kind of get the gunk off of you. You wanted to make yourself clean. And so this concept that was functioning in Old Testament Judaism was not that far off from things that we still do today. And so in our passage, these Pharisees, though, notice that the disciples of Jesus are not cleansing themselves or washing the way that they should be, or the way the Pharisees think they ought to be. And we'll see how Jesus responds. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. He replied to them Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Verse 9, he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So what does he say to them? He calls them hypocrites. Quoting, thank you. <laughs> Quoting the book of Isaiah. Hypocrites, it was a, a word taken from the Greek theater that was basically a word for an actor. Someone on stage who would perform and play a role and wear a mask and pretend to be something that they weren't in real life. And he's saying, that's what you guys are. You guys care more about your traditions. You might sound good on the outside, say the right things, that it sounds spiritual, but you don't really care about God. Your hearts are actually far from God. And he says, here's how I know. He keeps going. He gives them an example. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, but you say, that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Great, okay, what in the world is he talking about? Well, it sounds a little foreign, but he's basically giving them an example of their hypocrisy. And he says, Okay, let's talk about this. God's word says to honor your father and mother. One of the commandments. Pretty pretty clear, pretty straightforward. And yet, he says, You Pharisees have created this tradition or this oral law, this rule called Corbin, which would essentially allow someone to vow to give part of their property or possessions to God rather than their parents. So imagine someone has aging parents. Rather than giving some funds to support those parents in their time of need, someone could essentially make a vow to God saying, God, I'm going to give you this portion of my income or this piece of my property, and it would go to the temple when they died. But while they were still alive they retained possession of it. So it was basically a loophole in the system where they could make some kind of sham vow and then just keep their money to themselves rather than honoring their father and mother the way that scripture commanded them to do. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your law, your tradition has made room for this kind of hypocrisy. And it shows that you don't care about God and truly honoring him. You're just out for yourself. And he goes on. Here's the real problem. Verse 8 you let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Again, verse 9, you set aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Then again, verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. So he repeats it several times. You have elevated your own rules, your own human religious traditions, human inventions over the Word of God. And see, the expectation to wash your hands in a certain way or wash your hands before eating or after returning home from the market, that was not something found in the Old Testament. That was not something found in the Torah. That was part of this added tradition that the elders or the Pharisees, the religious leaders, worked up. So he's saying, guys, that's not even part of the Word of God, this thing that you're so worried about. And these rules that they came up with were often referred to as uh, fences. That was kind of the the idea that God's word said, let's just say, for example, don't fall off a cliff. Okay, That's what God's word says. And the Pharisees would look at that and say, well, God, it's not really specific enough for us. We really want to make sure that people don't fall off the cliff. So we're going to help you out, God. We're going to add some rules to what you've said. And so basically people aren't allowed to be within 50 feet of the cliff. Okay, and so that's the rule that they would add just to make sure that no one falls off the cliff. This is just a hypothetical example, okay? And so if they saw someone that was 48 feet from a cliff or 45 feet from a cliff or 40 feet away from the cliff, they would kind of look at them side-eyed. I'm not sure that person's really as spiritual as I think they should be. Not because they were violating the Word of God, but because they were violating the oral tradition that made this fence around the Word of God that was merely a human addition. We've seen similar things in our lifetime. There was a time where for a man, you could not have long hair or a shaggy beard and be considered a good Christian. Just ask Steve Fretwell. He'll (laughs) tell you a story. It's true. It was considered un- Holy, possibly? It was considered not proper for a true man of God? There were issues about this. It was unspiritual, unfit for a, a godly person. Jesus got an exception, but nobody else. Nobody else. And know we, we laugh at that. And then we think, oh, aren't, aren't we glad that we're past that? Like, we're beyond that sort of crusty legalism that demonstrated in that way, Right? But legalism is far from dead. Legalism is actually alive and well. It just has taken a different form nowadays. We just created new lists and new rules that tell us who's good and bad and inside and outside. For example, God says in his word not to get drunk. Fair enough. Some people say, well then, better not drink. And that's fine. That's your personal choice. But then they say, well, other people shouldn't drink either. And if they do, we're going to kind of look down on them spiritually. We're going to question their commitment to the Lord. Or God said, don't love money. And so people said, well, that's great and all, but you also better not have a nice house or nice possessions or drive a nice car. And if you do, then you're not quite living up to our spiritual standards. We're going to question your spirituality. Or we would look at the truth that our body is a temple of the Lord. And we'd say, so then your appearance really matters. You should present yourself well. should really dress a certain way, come on Sundays looking a certain way. And those that maybe don't do that, we're going to, again, look at them a little side-eye. We're going to question their spirituality because of our added rules. That might not be written anywhere. But in our minds, and our hearts, we assume these sorts of things. Or maybe we say, well, relationships are important and community is important. You can really only have good relationships and strong Christian community in a smaller church. And so if you go to a church that's a little too big, you're going to question your spirituality. You're going to question whether God's really working there. Because we have our view of what church should look like. We do this in all kinds of ways. Better vote a certain way. Better vote Democrat better vote Republican. Those that don't, mm, not sure about them and their spirituality. Really, we do this in all kinds of ways. Those are just a few examples where we take a piece of God's word, maybe some kernel of truth there, and then we add to it. We add our own additions, our own rules about what spirituality and following Jesus really is supposed to look like. I remember I was a, I've done this before too. I'm, I'm guilty of this. I remember I was a, Junior higher, new believer. was in junior high. I was into music. There was this band that was kind of a Christian band. They, like, I think, they were Christians, but their music wasn't like over the top Jesus in your face. And non-Christian people liked them too. Like they were on the radio. Does anyone remember POD? Is that okay? All right, yeah. So okay, got some people right. So I remember when I first came a Christian, I heard some of their music, and I was, I was like a zealous little. I was like a little Pharisee running around. Okay, and I was like. I don't think these people are Christian enough. I don't think this band is hardcore enough about Jesus. And I had this kind of bone to pick with them. And then the truth came out one day. I found out that they were playing a concert with other bands that were not Christian bands. They were playing at a non-Christian concert, also known as a concert. And I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. This is not right. They're clearly not Christian enough. What is going on? And one of my youth leaders, thankfully, pulled me aside and said, Matt, you need to chill. You need to calm down. Because he said, no, he actually, I think he knew some of the band members. He was like, these guys love Jesus. What an opportunity this is to play this music festival with all these non-Christian bands and all these non-Christian audiences and to to play music that subtly points people to the Lord. What a a cool opportunity. And he was right. But the the, the little Pharisee in me wanted to say, no, they're not doing it right. They're breaking my rules and my expectations of what spirituality is supposed to look like. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Really? Really? really, I am. And so going back to what we started talking about this morning, the concept of shame, the concept of feeling flawed, feeling like there's something wrong with us, uh, the approach to dealing with that, that the Pharisees are modeling, is essentially legalism, right? If we just keep the rules, right? We wash the right way, we avoid the right people, maybe we're, we're better than other people at keeping these spiritual rules, then our feelings of shame are going to go away and will feel puffed up and feel all right about who we are. And this is really an outside-in approach, right? Modifying the external things, our behavior, our washings, whatever it might be, hoping that that will deal with the impurities within our hearts. It doesn't really work. And Jesus is going to show us another way as we read on. Verse 14. It says, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. So after this dialogue with the Pharisees, he brings everyone together. And like a coach who brings his team together for a huddle with something really important to say, says, guys, you need to understand this. I don't want you to miss this truth. And he goes on in verse 15. Hear me, nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Hey guys, nothing from the outside is going to come into you and make you unclean. Rather, it's what comes out of you, out of your heart. That's what makes you unclean. Very clearly, guys, the external stuff, that's not the problem. It's not about the clean or the unclean hands. It's not about the clean or the unclean food. The disciples are a little bit confused. Verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. They're like, Jesus, could you tell us a little more? He goes on, verse 18, says, are you so dull? He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Okay, so he reinforces, hey, again, it's not the outside stuff that's the problem. And see, the Jews had these rather specific dietary laws where certain foods were to be avoided. Certain foods would be considered unclean. And Jesus is saying, guys, the food's not the problem. The food's really never been the problem. Unwashed hands that touch unclean things are not the problem. Why? Because they don't affect the heart What is consumed eventually leaves the body. So he's trying to say that, guys, these laws about clean and unclean were always intended to point to a deeper reality, to point to something more foundational about human beings and their need. Again, this is so important for us to grasp today because I think, if we're honest, a lot of us, sometimes we we come to church and we think that what we need the most is an external change. We come to church looking for good moral standards to guide our lives. We come to church looking for a, a new set of behaviors or life tips that are going to improve our lives. Church is about getting your act right, right? Learning to obey, do the good things, avoid the bad things, be a good person. A couple weeks ago, a, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. That ever happened to you guys? Yeah. They're very sweet people. They came and uh, it was a Saturday. I was in my PJs and uh, Amber was out and Zoe was taking a nap. and I was hanging out with my dog Coda. I get the knock at the door and I go and answer the door. And um, these two gals there, again, very kind, come to me and they say, uh, hey, do you have a minute? I said, sure. And they said, uh, sir, do you believe that the Bible is relevant today? And I said, yes, I do. (laughs) You've come to the right house. Uh, I certainly do. And so they go on and they start talking about the Bible a little bit. And if you don't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, we're coming from pretty different places in terms of uh, who Jesus is, who God is. They would look at the Bible and affirm some of it, but we have some pretty big disagreements about um, who God is and what it means to follow Jesus. And so we get talking and I'm like, I'm going to save you guys some time. I'm a pastor down the street, a big fan of the Bible. Definitely on Team Bible. And they're like, okay, uh, we're just going to leave this packet with you. So they leave me this uh, packet to read over. They're like, we'll come back and, and talk with you eventually. And I haven't seen them since, but they left the packet. And I was curious, though, to read about you know, what, what they have to say exactly and so in their own words. So I started reading through it. And the, the title of the packet was, Is the Bible Still Relevant Today? So i like, okay, great. Let's see what they have to say. So I start reading through. And one big section of the packet said that the Bible helps to avoid problems. It's true. It says, well, the Bible says not to get drunk or to misuse alcohol. And the Bible says to avoid sexual immorality and not to have affairs and things of that nature. Both of those things will uh, bring damage and harm into your life. And the Bible says to avoid them. Bible tells you not to do them. So the Bible is relevant today. The argument is that these things will harm you. The Bible says to avoid them, okay? Their next section was the Bible helps to resolve problems. It says you have the problem of worry. Well, the Bible tells you not to worry. You have the problem of procrastination. Well, the Bible tells you to be a hard worker. Problem solved. It says the Bible, or excuse me, you have the problem of loneliness. The Bible tells you to have good friends and be in community. And it goes on and on, and it says a lot more than just these examples. But do you see the essential thrust of the packet was that the Bible tells you to do the good things and tells you to avoid the bad things and thus live a somewhat happy and successful life. Basically says you can fix up your life, just follow these rules. The problem is that you don't have the right information or the right advice on how to live, and the Bible gives it to you. Here's the do's and don'ts that you need to live a happy life. And it's behavior modification. And I'm not trying to rag on the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is not just a Jehovah's Witness thing. I mean, that message gets communicated in all kinds of churches, Christian churches today. Behavior modification. Do you see that the problem with that? It doesn't get at the source of the problem that doesn't deal with the human heart. It doesn't deal with where those sins are coming from. It would be like trying to clean up a creek that is just littered with trash. You could go every day to that creek and take out a couple pieces of trash and kind of polish it up a little bit. But if there's a factory a mile downstream that's just pumping garbage into that stream, you could go every day and take a couple pieces out. But as long as that factory is still operating, the stream's never going to be clean. Superficial fixes aren't going to do the trick. And Jesus says as much. He says, no, here's what the actual problem is. Verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. Again, that's what makes us unclean is this this sin that comes out of our hearts and into our lives. And this list is not exhaustive. It's just a number of examples. And so he says, the problem is not anything outside of you. The problem is your heart. The problem is what comes from inside By this, he doesn't mean just a a physical organ that pumps blood through the body. The heart was the the center of the will. It was where decisions are made in Jewish thought. It's where our uh, decisions come, where our values, where what we cherish the most is, is pursued. And so he gets that really here, the doctrine of original sin. That human beings inherit a sinful nature, from their first father, Adam, that we don't come out of the womb neutral or even positive. We come out with a bent away from God, a bent towards sin, bent towards evil, if you will. Though God created us good, human beings have fallen into sin without exception. This is true of all of us. This is the concept of depravity of human beings. But notice, this is a pretty controversial opinion today. This is one that most would want to deny, again, and say that, no, human beings are actually uh, good-natured. In our hearts, at the, the deepest part of who we are, we're, we're good people. British philosopher uh, C.M. Jode was one that held to that view, that human beings are essentially good, that human progress is eventually going to uh, fix the world. We can not be stopped by anything. But then, World War II happened. And he said that shattered his view of the human being. And he said it this way. He said, It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being so disappointed. We're so disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, disappointed by the behavior of nations and politicians, said, above all, we were disappointed by the recurrent fact of war. See what he's saying? He's saying, we rejected the concept of sin, rejected the concept of original sin, rejected the idea that there's anything wrong with you, and yet we kept looking at the world and we were constantly disappointed. It didn't add up. If human beings were really who we thought they were, then why do we keep seeing the things that we see? And the same concept can be applied to us today is again we look at our world now I think we can think the same things man if sin isn't real if the human heart has nothing wrong with it why in the world does the world look the way that it does saying so it doesn't add up oh, but Jesus says no the problem is the human heart and you notice in the passage he, he doesn't give us the solution it just kind of leaves us wondering Here's the problem. But how does someone become clean if they are defiled? He doesn't say. And so it forces us to look elsewhere in Scripture and think, where else might the Bible speak to this? What do we do about our uncleanness, about our broken hearts, sinful hearts? And we can look to the Old Testament first. Throughout the Old Testament, there was this promise that God would do something new in the hearts of his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep my laws. Amen. That is our hope. Not that God will just give us an external law to follow, but God will do a new work, a transformation within us, giving us new hearts to follow him. And the good news is that God has done this through the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 8 makes it clear that this new covenant, this new agreement between God and people, Jesus Christ initiated. He brought this newness, this change, this promise that Ezekiel 36 spoke of came through the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and what? Purify us from all unrighteousness. And in verse 7 of that, Passage. He says he cleanses us or washes us, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the work of Jesus on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. The promise that if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we belong to him, we are joined to him, We are now a new creation. He has done a new work of life within us. I mean, this is the concept from John chapter 3 about being born again. Through faith in Christ, God gives us new hearts, new spiritual life within. And so as Jesus is combating these Pharisees, it's not that these Old Testament purity laws were silly or didn't matter at all. It's not his point. It's just saying that they've been fulfilled in Christ. These laws about clean and unclean were like signposts. They were always pointing to some deeper reality, some future thing that God would do, this internal cleansing and saving. And now, in the person of Jesus Christ, what the signposts pointed to has come. It is here. So don't you see how this is such good news? going back to the research that we started with this morning, that everyone feels this sense of being flawed or broken and unclean, Jesus would say, well, it feels that way. It feels like something is wrong with you because something is. I mean, really, because something is wrong and it's your heart, and you need a new one. And so rather than pretending like there's nothing wrong with you the way culture would tell you to do, or rather than playing the Pharisee game and trying to follow the rules and adding rules to justify yourself, the gospel is opposite of both of those. Because in the gospel, we could recognize that we are unclean. We are in sin. We're dead in sin with a rotten heart, but God loves us anyway. And he came to save us and take the penalty for our sin upon himself. And through faith in him, he would wash us and renew us and forgive us and adopt us into his family to know and walk with him. And that's what we celebrate here, church. That's why we're here, not for some behavioral tips, but for the gospel. What about rules then? The Bible still has a lot of do's and don'ts. God does care how we behave, cares a lot. (laughs) But this passage reminds us that the Christian life is about learning to be obedient, not in order to be saved, not in order to belong, but obeying because we have already been saved. Through faith in Christ, we belong. Through faith in Christ, we've been saved. And so now we get to obey and follow God out of joy, a joyful response to the work that God has already done. And so, friends, we get to celebrate in a um, tangible way today by coming to the communion table. As we come to the table together as a church, we remember the work of Jesus on our behalf. We remember his broken body, his shed blood on the night. He was betrayed. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we come to the table as a church, we remember the gospel again, that we were unclean, that we needed washing and saving and through the work of Jesus Christ, he has cleansed us and welcomed us home and forgiven us. And so we, uh, we practice an open table here, which means uh, if you're, even if you're visiting, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us. As the music plays, you can come forward to the table and take the elements right there. If you're you're new today or you're not sure if you're really into this Jesus thing, that's okay. We encourage you just to remain seated and reflect on what we've talked about this morning. No pressure to come forward. But this is for for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, the truths that we have reflected on this morning from your word. That there is something Gone horribly wrong in our hearts, but you, Jesus, came to die for us, to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us, to give us new hearts, and we thank you for that. And so before we come to the table, we acknowledge that we are needy, that we have sin in our lives, that we need your grace and your forgiveness. So we come to you in great humility, but we also come with great joy knowing that because of you, Jesus, you welcome us to your table. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.